morning and welcome to our first week of Advent. We're going to be reading from Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. As Mary considered the coming birth of the Messiah, her heart overflowed in a song of praise. In Luke 1, we see her rejoice in this good news of a coming Messiah. She speaks of God's salvation, power, mercy, and blessing. Perhaps we need these reminders this year more than ever. Our theme for Advent this year is The Weary World Rejoices. So on this first Sunday of Advent, we remember the hope and joy that God brings through the coming of his Son. Together we worship a God who came to rescue his people from sin and death through the work of Jesus. A God who came to humble the proud and lift up the lowly. We rejoice this morning with Mary, celebrating Jesus our Savior. Advent is not only a time of looking back to the coming of Christ, but forward to when we will, he will come again. So in this season we remain hopeful that Jesus our King will return and fix his broken world. Even though our world today is marked by death, loss, and turmoil, it will not be this way forever. So now we light our first Advent candle, which is representing the hope we have in Christ. And if you'll all join me with prayer. God, this morning we pray along with Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We celebrate the fact that you came to save us. As your people, we remain hopeful that you are sovereign and on your throne. As the year 2020 draws near its end, we realize that our world is weary. We are weary. Help us to find strength and joy in you. Would you refresh us and remind us of the hope we have in the coming of Jesus our Savior? In your name, amen. Now, Please join us for singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, as we continue to worship and remember Jesus. Well, good morning. Um, it's a pleasure to you know, be able to speak to you guys today. Uh, Matt asked me to preach. Um, he's obviously getting ready to have a baby. Hopefully by this time he has had the baby. And this is not the typical, I think, Thanksgiving um, sermon because we're not going to do like, oh, let's talk about your thankful for. Matt's asked me kind of the, like a a pre-sermon to their focus for 2021, where you're really going to be, we're going to be studying this idea of, hey, go where you are, this idea of the fourth core commitment where we have worship, connect, grow, and then go, um, and encourage us as a people, as a body, to really go into the community and to serve this community, go into this community, not only serve this community, but to proclaim the gospel and to make sure that we are loving people in a way where we have the opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. And so I'm excited to just be 
be able to share with you guys today. And um, this, ti- this sermon title really is Jesus um, and the mission statement of Jesus. And, and so I, I want to have you turn to the book of Luke. I do want to warn you that we are going to be flipping around the, the Bible quite a bit. And so I'm going to try to talk slowly. You don't necessarily know me, but I, I, I talk kind of fast. So um, get your Bibles out, turn to Luke, and we'll go from there. But for that, let's just pray. Father God, we just want to thank you for the fact that you are alive and well, that you are moving in your people in the midst of all the craziness that we've already had this this year, this season. God, we pray that you would help us to trust in you. We pray that you would help us just to depend on you. We pray that we would rest upon your 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 promises that you put in in the in your word, that we know that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that we know you are a sovereign God, totally in control of all things. And so God, we trust that you are still moving and active in your people. And so we pray, God, that we would just be people that uh, show our confidence in you, that we would be people that are thankful for what you've given to us, that we would be people that stop and just um, just really represent you wherever we are. So Lord, we thank you for the time. We thank you for your word that does not return in void, your word that encourages, challenges, inspires us to to be more and more like your son. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done and what you're doing in the life of your people and the life of your people here at the church. In your precious name we pray, amen. Um, our main text is going to be Luke 4, uh, verse, starting at verse 16. But before that, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a, an overview of, of Luke up until this point. So Luke, Luke 1 really starts with um, this thing with John the Baptist. He's the first one on the scene, Luke 1, 41, where um, Mary's sister, um, or Mary's, I think it's a cousin. Actually, I don't even realize, know who it is. I can't even think about it right now. Elizabeth, um, she is having... Um, John the Baptist, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit, we know in Luke um, chapter 1, verse 41. And this is important because up until this point, we really believe that God has not spoken to his people in 400 years. God has been silent. God has not said, there's not been one prophet to come on the scene here. And so since Malachi, up until this point, God's people have not heard from him. And then you have Luke 1, 41, where um, Elizabeth is, is filled with the Spirit. And, and this thing of like God is starting to, he is alive and active with his people. Again, chapter 2 deals with the birth of Jesus, the good news of the great joy that we have, the Christmas story, where God comes to first shepherds. Um, now, why this is even important, I believe it's important because it deals with the first people to hear the message were these lowly shepherds, people who were not high on the social ladder, people who, well, frankly, they smelled all day long, right? Um, they hung around sheep. It wasn't something like, oh, you're a shepherd. There wasn't a resume builder there. And then Luke 250, uh, 2.51 says when, G- when Jesus was in the temple and they were looking for him, but then it says when he, um, he went in subjection to his parents and in Luke 2.52, it says, and Jesus grew and in, increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. This is probably one of the most impactful sermons I heard in college where I realized that Jesus had to learn to wait on the Lord's timing, that Jesus had to learn to wait on God the Father, that he had to, to grow in wisdom and stature. And so as a young man, that was important for me to hear because I was really, man, I have to grow in wisdom and stature. I have to continue to wait upon the Lord in his timing. 
And then Luke 3, it deals with John the Baptist again, and he is preparing the way for Jesus. And it starts off with the genealogy where most people you would say, oh yeah, Abraham, you know, the Jewish people, Abraham. But this goes all the way back to Adam saying that, that um, and how Jesus is the second Adam, that Jesus is what? The savior of all mankind, the savior of all humanity here. And then Jesus here, um, he's called uh, the, the Son of God. Adam's called the Son of God, strategically placing Jesus between what? The baptism and the desert temptation. And of course, um, you know, Jesus, he, he passes the temptation, but he's here seen as the theanthropist. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man here. And so next on the scene, you have the Holy Spirit falls upon Jesus in bodily form, kind of officially anointing and empowering him for the task at hand which leads us to the temptation of Christ where he is tested and he is tried. And of course, he's, he's 100% legit. He is real and he comes out um, blameless. And Jesus now has the, the spirit of God within him and he begins to do his ministry. And it's now a public ministry that goes out and about. And this leads us really to our main text where Jesus is now going to start his ministry. And this is what he says in Luke 4, chapter 16, verses 16 through 19. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me and reclaimed good news to the poor. He has sent me to reclaim the, cap, uh, the liberty of the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is, um, him, he's referring back to Isaiah uh, 61, the mission statement of Jesus. This is what Jesus is all about. Mission statements, I love mission statements because it really helps you to discover a company's um, identity in a lot of ways. And I, I love mission statements when they're good. There's some mission statements, ah, they're not so good. But I love them when they're really good. And it really acts as a sift for the entire organization. Say, this is what this organization is about. In a brief statement, it can help the organization filter through all the the mess, all the different priorities that they could have. Nike's mission statement, I don't know if anyone knows it. Do you know it? You're going to probably, you probably said, oh, it's, um, you know, just do it, which is not their mission statement. That is their slogan. Their mission statement, um, according to coach Bill Bowerman, he said this, he's the co-founder of Nike. He says it's to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And then he says, and if you have a body, then you're an athlete. So when I put on my Nikes, being six foot three, 280 pounds, I should feel what? I should feel inspired and innovative. I should, I should be, you know, they're endorsed by Michael Jordan and all these other great athletes. I should feel like I should go out and be able to dunk. And many times, many of us do at our age where we end up spraying an ankle or something like that or falling down. But the goal of their advertisement is to say, man, look at these greats. Look at who they have. That should be you. It's to inspire and innovate us. We're here, Jesus is telling his purpose for his reason for existing. And it starts off with proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, I don't want you to turn me off where you're like, oh, great, he's going to deal with some social justice. Because I promise you, that's not the message. And when he says proclaim good news to the poor, as a believer, what verses come to your mind when it talks about a poor, someone who's like a beggar, helpless, someone who's in a complete destitute situation, who has nothing to offer? 
Well, I think of Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think of Revelation 3, 14, um, and, and, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the, of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the God of God, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. What that you were neither, um, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of mouth. For you say I'm rich, I have oppressed, uh, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So here the verses dealing with poor is really dealing with a spiritual bankruptcy, meaning you do not have the resources at hand to deal with the issues at hand. When you look at the world's issues, your own moral depravity, you are lacking the ability to solve the problem. You go to solve it and it comes back saying decline, you don't have enough funds in the bank. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The good news is this, is that God came to this earth in the form of his creation. Why? So that he could pay the price for our sins. So he could take care of pathetic, poor, miserable souls like you and I. Isaiah 55 says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? So here he, is, he reaches to the helpless. And so this old idea of help is on the way. The text says proclaim, meaning to evangelize, bringing good news. It's the idea of the Christians were all scattered after the, the prophet um, Stephen was, was, was martyred. Um, it says they began to really you know, preach the good news. This is like he now, this message, this publishing, this good tidings here. He, they are now living, breathing, walking bulletins of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has died on the cross and rose again. That salvation was here, proclaimed boldly here. And then it says, sent me to, meaning they're on a mission. He had business to take care of. In fact, this passage is saying that, that God has sent him on this special task. He is on a mission from God. His authority and backing is the almighty one himself, the master and the one who has all authority. And it says to do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives. This idea of prisoner of war, idea of bondage. The word captive means those who have been taken, who are conquered. In this sense, captive by the devil, captive by the evil culture at hand. It's the beauty of Colossians 1.13, which says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, whom we have been brought back, bought back, the idea of redemption. This is Jesus as the great superhero. Do you see the gospel in this? Charles Wesley, I don't know if you know your church history, Charles Wesley's an old Methodist um, you know, church founder, really, and he's written a bunch of hymns. Um, and one of the things that he was on his first missionary journey, and he was contemplating the, the, um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Not an easy read, by the way. And he himself came to a true saving faith. This is after he's on his first missionary journey. He's contemplating what it means to be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And he writes this in an old hymn that we, we sing. 
Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He's caught up in this idea, and there's literally 25 verses of just what it means to be saved, what it means to be a child of God. And part of it is, man, he breaks the power of canceled sin. It's Romans 6, which says, you are dead to sin. Do you see the gospel in what's happening here? The text says, in recovering of sight to the blind, and this is what Paul is told in Acts 26, 17 through 18, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, oppressed mean what you are broken in pieces, shattered and crushed, squashed by life's circumstances, who can see no way out and Christ comes and gives them freedom, forgiveness. He's talking about poor folks, prisoners, blind, and oppressed individuals. Do you see the gospel in this? And Luke 4, verse 20 says this, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the tenant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? You see, the people actually, they knew Jesus. And they, they, they could identify with Jesus. But something happens here where they begin to, in verse 28, they begin to trip off of what Jesus is now saying. Just six little verses later, and they're amazed. You know, um, you know they, were, they went from being amazed from the hometown boy, the boy that they knew. And this is what they say in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow on the hill in which they, they, their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They're getting ready to stone him. So they go from total amazement, marveling at the gracious words of, of, of Jesus to absolute madness. They're literally, let's kill the hometown boy who they knew, who they, they never saw do anything wrong. They never heard him say anything wrong. This is the kid that they knew who was full of grace and truth and ministered in the temple and all around great, humble guy. And within moments of awe and wonder, they go to complete and total epic rage. Why? It's what he said, isn't it? It's how he demonstrated the mission. It's how the gospels played out in their history that enraged them. It's when he says over in verse um, 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote from me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogues were filled with wrath. Verse 29 says, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him the brow of the hill in which they were, the town was built to stone him. 
Now, I believe we have to proclaim the message of the cross from the amazing story of creation from Genesis to Revelations and how God is working powerfully to rescue his people. Yet I also believe this passage shows us something very, very powerful about how we must demonstrate the gospel that we must continue to, to display. So if we're going to go into a community, if we're going to go into Benicia and help people and tell them about who Jesus is, I think we have to be clear about the gospel and what the gospel then compels us to do, how the gospel transforms our lives so we can go out into a lost world. The message the crowd hated to hear was how God used the great prophets Elijah and Elisha to heal, cleanse, and save the Gentiles. In fact, it was done at their own expense because it says he passed, he passed by all of them and went to the land of Sodom. He was outside. Now, he could have said, hey, you know, God, how he saved Lot um, out of Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have said, hey, remember Joseph and how he, he saved not only, you know, the, the family but the whole world. But, but he chose this one specifically. Jesus was simply reminding them of the goodness of God to the Gentiles. Elijah in 1 Kings 17 bypassed by all the widows in, in, and helped the non-Abrahamic, non-Jewish widow. Elisha, 2 Kings 5, healed a Gentile leper. Jesus was showing the demonstration of God's love. The hometown crowd couldn't stand to hear the compassion of God to others. Jesus was showing how his love applied to the opposite of themselves. He had nothing to do with economic or social status. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. So how in the world are we dealing with racism when we know that we are all made in the image of God? How in the world could we ever have a past that would even say that, you know, black people at one point were three-fifths of a person? It's ridiculous. So Christians have to stand up and stand up for truth. And we're asking this question, who is worthy of love? Who is your neighbor? You have two extremes in this passage. It's a helpless widow and a, and a wealthy ruler plagued by, with leprosy. But the reality is that both of the opposite of the people he is talking to, both are, you know, you have a poor, you have the, the, the rich ruler. You, it's, it's the opposite here. So the rest of Luke is really demonstrating Jesus' mission statement. It's like what you see in the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, who is the neighbor in this scene? Who are the hearers of the parable supposed to take what, what it means to love God with all that they are and their neighbors as themselves? They didn't have an issue with loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Because let's be real, how can you really evaluate whether I'm loving God with, with all that I am? So the question of who is my neighbor naturally comes up because now it's on display. My, my love for God is now on display because he said, hey, love God and love others. Well, in the parable, it's the one who you despise. It's the one you look down on. It's the one you hate. It's the opposite of you. The spirit of the Lord has fallen on Jesus and he proclaims his mission statement saying, God loves the opposite of you. He loves you too, but he also loves the ones you don't seem to understand or get as long as they come on his terms in spiritual poverty, recognizing their great need, he will do the rest. He ends the story with go and do likewise. So the question is, how are you loving your neighbor? Being a part of God's mission goes way beyond you just having great theology and doctrine. Are you coming to you know, Sunday service? Our theology, our love for God must drive us to do hard, difficult things, to love with the love that only comes from God. I can say if your theology and doctrine doesn't force you to love others in this way, something is seriously, epically wrong with your doctrine. 
Jesus tells the hearers of this message to love the person that hates you. Luke 6, through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Love those who hate you, the text says. Those that are mean to you. I'm not talking about your annoying neighbor you know, even though I, right now we're dealing with, with some stuff that's crazy because of the political stuff we've been going through, because all the, you know, where we are with just the, the cultural things of, you know, where it's, it's the blacks against whites, the cops against the mask wearers and no mask wearers. We, we're living in this country of great divide now. And how will Christians be marked differently in these times? It doesn't mean we don't have to, we, you know, we obviously can think and we can have our own ideas and we can stand up for truth and that truth may be opposite of what the world is saying, but how do we carry that out? I'm not talking about when you're, you misunderstand your Christian brother or sister and you need to be reconciled and forgive one. I'm, I'm talking about the one who, who you can't really stand or better yet, the one who can't stand you, who wants to seem harm done to you. The passage here is dealing with your enemy here. This is the person that does not like you at all. The mission is further explained in Luke 6, 27, when it says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your, away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons in the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Love is much more than a feeling in this text. Love is costly. I'm supposed to give my jacket, my cash. He's describing a sacrificial love here. Love that does not cost is worthless. Now let's flesh this out just a little bit. Have some real talk, right? I'm not saying you walk around San Francisco in the tenderloin and you start handing out jackets and cash. That would probably be funny, I think. Or maybe even for us, folks living in Benicia, it's, it's you know, us going into you know, parts of Vallejo and, and, and just going and handing out money. That would be ridiculous. But if the idea of giving your jacket at the moment is the utmost good, is the most good, is the best thing, then yes. If it's cash, then yes. But to an able person to keep hurting themselves, well, that's not really love. That wouldn't be the best thing for you in that situation. If you were broke and cold for someone just to say, oh, here's, you know, here's 50 bucks and you're also a drug addict, that wouldn't be wise. That wouldn't be loving. That would just be, here, can you go do your thing so I don't have to be bothered by you anymore? But if you were to sit down and have maybe some coffee with that person to look at, into rehabs for that person, to share the love of Christ with that person, to slow down enough to tell them, hey, you actually matter in God's economy. The world might be passing you by. The world might say you have, you're insignificant, but you were made in the image of God, so you have intrinsic value and worth. So I'm not going to look away and pretend I don't know how to work my car stereos if my car is even, and, and just, oh, let me fumble with my car versus seeing what's outside my window. That isn't really loving. So the text here with the Good Samaritan says, hey, 
he, he went and, and took care of that person. He paid for this person to get some help and medical attention. Um, it, it, it cost something. He didn't just say, hey, are you okay, and walk away. So let me ask you this question. How is God calling you to love your neighbors you, you like and don't like? How is God calling you to show love to folks you just don't really seem to understand or get? Jesus shows us the love of God, right? He definitely proclaims the love of God and broadcasts the message only he seems to be able to do with his parables and sermons like Luke 10 with the Good Samaritan. Yet he himself demonstrates, shows, portrays the mission. 1 John 4, 8 through 11 says this, if anyone does not love, does not know God because God is love. The world has hijacked this idea of what love is. God is love. He's the definition of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was shown among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So now he is the source of that love. Because it says that we should live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be what? The propitiation for our sins, meaning he is the example of our sin. He appeases the wrath of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides, he rests, and his love is perfected in us. Can I argue that as believers, you should have a more growing and maturing love that, that abides, remains, dwells, lives within us, that causes us to, to love people more, that causes us to be more like our Savior, that causes people to see our Jesus? There's a sense of agape love here. Uh, it's a, agape love is done with the direction of the will, the, the intent, a strong affection towards. This agape kind of love is going to cause you to share life with people. This world is, seeing, is saying so much about who you are, your identity. We are having identity crisis literally in this country. In Ephesians 2, 4, wants you to understand this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us before, um, and before you get to, to all of that, you have to realize, okay, God loves us. He is rich in mercy, and, and that, that seeks to start to define us. But before that, he says, I want you to understand why my love is so great for you, why you see it as so great. Because before that, verse 1 in chapter 2 of Ephesians says what? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2 says, and once you once walked from the course of this world, from the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mankind, whereby children, nature of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then it says, but God being rich in mercy, though you are an enemy of God, he loved you. So your identity before you came to know Christ was you are a sinner just like everybody else. And God steps in and saves us. This idea of proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel, our identity in, in, in Christ in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, Look, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may what? Proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you 
as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, and they may see your they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How can we love people like this? Well, do you understand mercy? Not getting what we deserve. If we believe we are people of God's mercy and we are not getting what we deserve, then we should be able to demonstrate God's mercy. Mercy is you're not getting what you deserve. When we understand we're all broken, we're all outside of Genesis 3, we're living in a fallen, sinful, sin-infested world, all the effects of sin run deeper in us than we will ever be able to put our mind around. That we're all sinners saved by God's grace. It's really by God's grace that you've ended up living here in beautiful Benicia, that you were placed in your family, in your neighborhood. It's grace. You could have been born in the hood or worse, the suburbs with your false sense of security and materialism and greed. Why aren't you an addict, a prostitute? Why don't you have issues with same-sex attraction? Why aren't you a conceited rich person, a homeless vagabond? It's grace. We all could be many Hitlers if it weren't for God's grace. We all could have this idea of we'll do what's right in our own eyes. So how do you see yourselves? How do we see ourselves? The folks that Jesus was trying to explain his mission statement definitely did not see themselves at the same boat as those Gentiles, as those other folks. They were part of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Luke has to go past Abraham to the original messed up grandfather Adam in the genealogy. Because Jesus is not just the savior for the Jewish people, for those of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the savior for all humanity. They didn't get that. Their reaction shows that. It's God's supernatural grace in your life. I used to love this song. It says, if it were not for God's grace, we'd be forever running but losing the race. Do you see the gospel? The gospel calls us to have a Christ-centered theology. We affirm and teach the word of God. This idea that God is talking about his kingdom and his people must exemplify, must showcase that kingdom a kingdom for all who recognize they are poor and helpless, a love that transcends the classroom of thought and reason to practically meeting real needs. This goes way beyond helping out at some shelter during the holidays and you get your little pat on your back for your random acts of kindness. Do you value God's kingdom? Then live it out. Why is there so few church plants happening in the inner cities? Why are we not pursuing missional communities? Why aren't we asking God um, about you know, where, he, where we should live? Why are we not seeking out the people who are opposite of us? So that we might, what, demonstrate his mission. Why aren't we loving our neighbors, the folks who we see at the grocery store, our favorite Starbucks barista? This church has a thing of Go. So the question is, where is God sending you? How are you on mission right now? Why is that really true for us? Well, first it says your reward is great. When? Well, it'll be great in the kingdom, in heaven. Calls us sons of the most high. God's kingdom um, in mind helps us to live in this world in its proper fashion, that we are just aliens and strangers, that this is not our home. That regardless of this election, we know who the king of kings is. 
I remember being in the hood of Jacksonville where we, we lived for quite a few years and we were in the hood there and we were serving a community of folks that um, the need was pretty great. I, I think it was, uh, I think it was 60% of the kids didn't graduate high school. Um, 34% of the community made 18,000 or less a year. One in nine drove cars. It was just a dilapidated old uh, part of the city that, um, you know, there were churches all around it, though, um, and they drove in to do their church, but they wouldn't go out into the community at all. And we lived in this new revitalized part of that area. So if you just went a mile up the road to where we were living, we had this amazing, beautiful 112-year-old home. It was like 32 square foot, you know, two gorgeous balconies and two amazing porches, perfect for sipping some sweet tea in the South. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. And um, but the home, all, the, the area had tons of dilapidated homes that people were buying up and fixing up and they were gentrifying the neighborhood, and, um, which I'm not necessarily a fan of. But uh, my friend, it, it was Thanksgiving and we were at my house because I throw down a mean Thanksgiving. And so um, it, was, it was pretty legit. And we have, we have dined sufficiently and we have gorged ourselves and we are now on a walk so we can come back and eat some more dessert, you know. And we're looking around the neighborhood and he's like, man, these 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 homes are just beautiful. These homes are amazing. And he's like, but man, you really just don't know who your neighbor would be here. You don't, I mean, you just don't know. I mean, I don't know if I want to live in this kind of neighborhood because I'm just not sure about the folks moving in. The funny thing is, you know, he was a conservative person. So this was when Obama was president. So you saw it was after the election. So you saw all the Obama signs, you saw rainbow flags. And he was just bothered by what he was seeing because he saw very little of himself reflected in that community. And I thought, well, I don't know who would live here besides what I'm seeing, but I will tell you who won't move here. And it seems to be people like you, a conservative Christian won't move here. And th that's shocking to me because as a conservative evangelical Christian, God has called us to move into difficult places. And so his idea that this is going to hurt his idea of comfort. The Gospel Coalition um, recently posted this quote from Pastor Matt Chandler. It says this, comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved and not a providence from God. Meaning it how God intervenes in the world, how he steps into the madness. Not something we are owed from this fallen, sin-infested world. It's God's gracious act of stepping into the madness on our behalf. I'm glad Jesus moved into my neighborhood and saw fit to love me. I'm glad Jesus demonstrated what he, he means with his mission statement by using people who weren't safe for the day, outsiders, in fact, just Mentioning those that God loves seemed to cause a riot with those religious folks of the day. In fact, just to touch them would have messed up your whole idea of worship. You would be seen as unclean. But in all reality, by touching them, this is when you begin to worship. So the good Samaritan, man, touching him, the, the priest who walked by, he would have been seen as unclean to help this man who was beaten half to death. Jesus stepped in, uh, left the heavenly realm, came down to this hood that we live in and saw fit to save us. Then he goes and uses these outsiders, these fishermen, these tax collectors, people, the people to go, what? Who are they? 
We need to be people who look at verses like James 1.27 and ask real questions, not just about holiness and sanctification, but also about you know, how we're dealing with the widow and the orphans in time of affliction. Maybe you don't know the verse, so let me tell you. It's James 1.27 says, pure religion is to keep uh, oneself undefiled from the world and to what? To take care of widows and orphans. I think we, we live in a place where we, we, we want to talk about our holiness and maybe our sanctification, how we're set apart, but we don't then get to the nitty-gritty of, well, God is also called in that holiness and in that you know, sanctification that we are going to love the least of these. We are going to love people. The mission is really holistic. It meets spiritual needs, yet it also meets physical needs. That's why God took care of the widow with Elijah and healed Naaman. And mission deals with every aspect of who you are. I pray that the days ahead, while we are reaching out to our neighbors, while we are in this now total lockdown to some degree again, that we will find ways to engage with our neighbors, that we will seek to love our neighbors, that you will love how Christ has called us to love, that you will see your own brokenness and the brokenness of this world and how God might be calling you not the pastors of this church, but calling each and every single one of us to engage with it. Not out of a position of I can fix them, but because we have received mercy and grace from a loving God. Don't you wonder why James says pure religion is to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions and to keep ourselves undefiled? We get the undefiled part right, but the demonstration of the helpless and the defenseless it showcases God's heart. It's joy for us to love when we keep eternity in mind. Luke 6 doesn't seem to be so foreign when we realize, man, that we are just strangers and aliens. The demonstration of the mission is being shown to us. We just happen to live in a day where it seems too many of us value safety, wealth, and so forth when we can't go to difficult places to proclaim his great message that saves us all. Therefore, it seems as if we have a gospel of the privileged. The incarnation is all we need as a demonstration of the mission of Jesus. If you think this is paradise, then you don't understand what heaven must be like. And Jesus left the heavenly realm, Philippians 2, and came down to be part of his creation, to save his creation. So whether you are you think too highly of yourself or not, this is the idea whether you are born in the wealth and prestige of maybe Blackhawk or Danville or any nice place, or you are born in Oakland on International Boulevard, whether you're poor, you are unable to fix your state of spiritual poverty. You are captive and bound in your sin, desperately needed to be powerfully rescued because sin destroys, kills, and sin equals death. And that's all mankind. But God has brought his people and saved his people that we would be his mouthpiece. And we have this tendency to go after what's easy. So we stick with the ones that look, smell, and act like us. We forget that the more marginalized in our community, we are all broken in need of this great proclamation of the mission statement of Jesus. Now, don't get it twisted. I believe we need to care for the helpless um, the helpless and the unborn, but the gospel also tells me that I need to care for those that are still alive. We need to search our hearts to see if we are seeking to fulfill this mission. This idea that God is calling his church to be connected, to abide with him, to rest in him, 
that once we are connected with our Savior, then we should be growing in our love, character, and spiritual maturity. We need to grow, and once we grow, we need to go and impact the world for Jesus. So if you have a problem with going, maybe you need to look at, man, am I growing? If I have a problem with me growing, then I need to look at, do I, am I planted in him? Luke is written with the premise of the gospel is for all. It crosses ethnic and social barriers. The Gentile is their opposite, like in Luke 10 with the neighbor. The principle is the same, and it ends with go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your saving grace in our lives. We thank you for the fact that you saw fit to come to rescue your people, not because of anything that we've done, but because you just saw fit to love your people. So we pray, God, that you would help us to be thankful for our salvation, be thankful for the fact that you came in the midst and that your spirit is alive and well within your people and your spirit is causing us to fight sin. Your spirit is promised to finish what it started within us. So God, we pray that this season would be a season marked with your people, loving people in such a way where it transforms the city of Benicia, God, where our neighbors see that there's a difference in how we engage, how we talk, how we interact with them. That God, you would bring revival as only you could do. God, that you would start with us in our homes and it would then flesh out to the rest of the community around us. So Lord, we thank you. In your precious name we pray, amen.